Okay, hello everybody. Today is Wednesday, time for the AMA. Welcome to the show. And just a couple of quick announcements and reminders before we truly begin. The first is that there will be a regularly scheduled episode on the disappearance of Donna Lass coming out tomorrow, Thursdays this year, in addition to the regularly scheduled lineup. I've been doing a segment which is intended to be a deep dive into the disappearance of Donna Lass from 1970, and it's been coming out on Thursdays. There will be one out tomorrow, and I was talking with somebody about a new project or episode series that was meant to happen on Black Box Online Radio. Last weekend, I did an episode called The Sleep Podcast, because some people said they listen to BBOR while they're going to sleep. And I was talking with someone, and I asked the question, do you think that is too different compared to the other material on BBOR? Should that be on its own separate channel? And they said yes. So I think that that's going to be the plan for the future. So maybe there won't be some uh, weekend episodes about these podcasts for falling to sleep, or maybe they'll just come out as soon as possible on a different channel. But... um. I'm just trying to find out what to do with that. However, there will be an episode this weekend on the Zodiac Killer debunking series, so please tune in for that one. If you haven't hit the like button and subscribed to the channel yet, now's a great time to do so, so you can follow along with all of these cases, all of these stories, and absolutely everything that goes on here at BBOR. So, the next one is that I've been doing a series on the New Orleans Axeman, and I've been talking a lot about the book, The Axeman of New Orleans, and I decided to reach out to the author of that one, Miriam C. Davis, and she responded to me. We've been exchanging some things back and forth, so most likely there will be one final episode in my series on the New Orleans Axeman, which will come out for the Anything Goes segment on Friday. Now, to go on to today's topic, last week I did one episode on the disappearance of Gabby Petito, which is now the death of Gabby Petito, the murder of Gabby Petito. It is a case that has taken the nation by storm, and I don't think it needs an introduction, but if I had to give some type of nutshell version, it's the story of a missing persons case. Gabby Petito went missing in Wyoming, or thereabouts, with her boyfriend Brian Laundrie. They had this plan to drive around the country in a van. They were even documenting it in a vlog, a van life vlog. But then, all of a sudden, Gabby stopped responding. It's possible that someone may have responded using Gabby's phone, pretending to be her. But then Brian drives from Wyoming to his family in Florida, leaves Gabby behind. Nobody knows what happened to her, and that's really what triggered the nationwide news story. From that point, Gabby was found missing, and even at the time of um the last episode that came out, there were remains that were found in Wyoming, and we weren't 100% sure that they belonged to Gabby Petito. At the time of this recording, I can say yes, that they do, as well as the authorities believe that she passed away because of homicide. And then an unusual twist is that her, I guess we would say, ex-fiancé, Brian Laundrie, disappeared into a nature reserve in Florida and is still missing 
as of now. I mean, of course people take off and run, but disappearing in this particular way is horribly suspicious. On the AMAs, I often respond to your questions and comments, but before I do that, I would like to just read a very quick timeline of the disappearance involving Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie that was made available on cbsnews.com. And of course, everything I say is going to have the disclaimer of this is an ongoing story, which I don't typically do on BBOR, so by the time this episode comes out, there could be another major development in the case. So, Gabby and Brian decided to hit the road in July of 2021. They were documenting their journey on a vlog. They attracted numerous followers and subscribers on the YouTube channel. But August 12th of 2021, there was the disorderly conduct stop. Gabby Petito was seen talking to Moab, Utah police officers after their van was pulled over and she was traveling in it with her fiancé, Brian Laundrie, near Arches National Park. I'm sure if you've been anywhere near a TV set, you have seen the body cam footage there. But August 19th, that's after this disorderly conduct, there is a van life episode. Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie posted a video on YouTube called Van Life, Beginning Our Van Life Journey, that shows them laughing and kissing. August 24th, they were seen in Salt Lake City, Petito and Laundrie were seen leaving a hotel in Salt Lake. August 25th, 2021 was Gabby's last post. And now August 27th of 2021 was the odd text that I was talking about. According to a search warrant on August 27th, Gabby Petito's mother says she received an odd text from Gabby. It said, Can you help Stan? I just keep getting his voicemails and missed calls. Stan is Gabby's grandfather, but her mother says Gabby never referred to him by his first name. Um, yeah, and I think it's absolutely very weird to refer to your grandfather by the first name, unless it's someone who's like a step-grandfather or someone who isn't um, really involved with her life. But Gabby said it was out of character and she was concerned, and that was the text message that may have been sent by somebody else. August 29th, 2021, Miranda Baker posts her on her TikTok, claiming she picked up Brian Laundrie, who was hitchhiking alone. August 30th of 2021, another text was sent, and um, it said no service in Yosemite. September 1st, Brian returns home. This is when Brian Laundrie returns to North Point, Florida, but he was alone, driving from Wyoming, or more or less, um, to uh, Florida. The big, the big thing to remember is, whatever town he's coming from, he's driving across the country, in Gabby's van, nonetheless, back to Florida. And then that's what really has, um, I think, initiated the news coverage. September 14th, 2021, Brian Laundrie's family issues a statement through their lawyer saying they intend to remain in the background while the search is underway. September 15th, a person of interest. Laundrie is refusing to cooperate and he is then named a person of interest. September 16th, there is a plea for help issued. Gabby's father asks anyone to help find his daughter. September 17th, where is Brian? He goes missing. September 18th, there is the search for Brian. September 19th, Gabby's remains are found. September 20th, there's an FBI raid and the police execute a search warrant on Laundrie's home, seizing his car and a hard drive that may have evidence of a felony. September 21st, Gabby is identified. September 23rd, an arrest warrant is issued 
for Brian Laundry, and this comes from the federal court in Wyoming. September 24th is a vigil for Gabby. And um, I just saw today, though, um, on the evening news, CBS Evening News, actually, that they um, had some of her, her family members all got matching tattoos, and it was meant to recreate a particular tattoo that Gabby Petito had. Now, I'll get to your questions and comments. The first one comes to us from Steve Allen, who says, I don't think Brian, referring to Brian Laundrie, can live with the guilt and shame of what he did. I have a feeling he's already taken his own life. Tragic story. I mean, I have no idea if Brian Laundrie took his own life at the time of this recording. As I said, new developments are coming out. At this time, he is still missing. He disappeared, to the best of our knowledge, in a nature reserve in Florida. I mean, yes, I've definitely thought about that. As far as uh, living with the guilt and shame of what he did, that, I think, is an extremely popular opinion. I mean, why else would somebody drive across the country to Florida without the person whom he's living with in this van, who's doing this, he's doing this van life vlog with his fiance? I know what people are going to think. The absolute first impression that everybody is thinking, including me, was that, oh, well, he must have done something very bad to Gabby, and then he wanted to get away, go to a safe place, and then think about what to do next. So, um, absolutely, I've thought of that. Guilt and shame, and Albert Forrell says, yes, it's confirmed a homicide, and that's, um, that's what, um, most likely seems to be the case. Gabby Petito was murdered, although we do not know all of the, um, all of the uh, specifics surrounding her death yet. Popmon says, Thanks for the why interest analysis. I didn't realize they had a High Views YouTube channel. That explains the frenzy of coverage. I first learned about Gabby Petito on the Lorden Arts channel. John Lorden, the host of that one, simply did an episode, and he covers lots of true crime cases. I've mentioned a couple of them recently, the Artesia Jane Doe, as well as Jessica Lauren Lynch. Um, the Artesia Jane Doe was the girl who was found in the Arizona desert wearing a ceremonial robe, and Jessica Lauren Lynch was someone found in South Boston living in somewhat of a makeshift room in the rafters near a subway station, or metro station, I should say, and very bizarre cases. He covers some very fascinating stories on the Lord Narch channel, and he was talking about this one, the disappearance of Gabby Petito, and I, I listened to it on, like, Friday morning, I think it was, Friday morning or Saturday morning, and then that whole weekend, the news coverage was exploding, and I was attempting to answer the question of why was um, Gabby Petito's disappearance receiving so much coverage from the media, and the two reasons I said was that she was doing this um, YouTube channel, which seemed to have already had a lot of attention, even before um, it was completely, completely overtaking the nationwide media circuits. It seemed like she already had a large amount of views on the channel, Gabby and Brian, uh, that is. But the more important reason why I think it received so much coverage is it had this very odd detail of Brian driving across the country back to Florida, and um, people were instantly, instantly drawing suspicion on him for that. Albert Forrell has another comment. His actions are not just suspicious. It sounds bizarre to return from a trip without either a girlfriend or explanation. Absolutely! I mean, like, yes, that's a brilliant way of phrasing it. If there's nothing to hide, why 
leave somebody in Wyoming and drive to Florida? I mean, why leave somebody in Washington State and drive to Maine? I mean, that, that just would be so bizarre. I mean, yes, that's a great way of phrasing it. He returned without the girlfriend or an explanation. And I do think the distance really plays into the public's fascination with the disappearance and now the murder of Gabby Petito, because I think in the past episode, I stated that if this had been something like they were in Alabama, and then he decided to return to Florida, be like, oh yeah, we were doing this uh, road trip thing, we got as far as Alabama, then we got in a huge argument, I drove back, yeah, she's coming on the bus later on. If he had an explanation, and then there might not be some type of um, immediate suspicion around him. I, know, I mean, that would be very weird if someone just drives off in her van, nonetheless, leaving her in any state. But if he was just saying, oh, yeah, she's going to come on the bus this evening. Well, crazier things have happened. I don't know. This is a pretty crazy story. Someone's crossing nearly the entire country in this van where they were supposed to be on this road trip together. So, uh, Simon has a comment when he says, In August, the Utah State Police let him go, st stating that a mental health crisis is not domestic violence after a witness called to report him slapping Gabby Petito. Not sure what the laws are in Utah, but in other states, he should have been arrested right then and there. Maybe the cop wanted to give him a break. I don't know. Well, I've also heard that Gabby was, um, they, the, the authorities were called once because Gabby was assaulting him. So, I mean, the cops do things like give people breaks and such. And this is uh, 15 Lee says, They were going to charge her with the abuse since he had the marks and she admitted to hitting him. He didn't want her in trouble. She had no marks whatsoever. And that's, um, I think 15 Lee's comment is more spot on. Uh, the things that I remember hearing about in the mainstream media coverage, just like on the evening news and such, all said that, the um the authorities were called because Gabby was the one who was the aggressor in that situation, to the best of their knowledge, plus the body cam footage. But um, no matter what happened, I mean, she didn't deserve to die. But on the CBS Evening News with Nora O'Donnell a couple days ago, they said that this whole thing about Brian Laundrie being the suspect in Gabby's disappearance relates to actions that happened after her disappearance. And this whole thing is not that he's not a suspect in her murder. I don't know what that means. And that is the only place that I've heard that. And I kid thee not, the CBS Evening News, that's where I heard that statement. I don't know if that means they don't think that he was guilty of her murder, but maybe he did something else illegal. I don't even want to speculate at this point. So, going on to the next comment, Classic Chevy Cat. I've been following this since Gabby was reported missing. Disappointed in my local Bay Area news. Was clicking on all and nothing at the top of the hour. Went to Fox to catch an early update. Saw Dr. Grande this morning. Interesting and extremely sad. Um, yeah, I think Dr. I, I saw the thumbnail for Dr. Grande's video, but I have not seen that one. I might... 
watch that one soon. But um, I, I have to confess to you, kind of off on a side note, I really find that Dr. Todd Grande is now just choosing subjects that are popular as opposed to actually giving insightful psychological analysis. He used to do the scientifically informed psychological opinion and so on, which I really liked. These days, he's more about two-thirds of his videos are summary, and then one-third is just talking about um some very general comments, and he's referring to them to these videos because they're of popular subjects. Colonel Reb says, Love your show, Ned, but you're a little bit late with this news. You're better than these gray hue sensationalism types. Keep going in the direction you are, and you'll outlast them all. Well, that was the actually the first comment that came in last week when I did the episode on the disappearance of Gabby Petito, and as far as gray hues goes, overall, I'm a fan of gray hues, for a couple reasons. I first learned about him because he was the guy who made those 3D models of crime scenes, and at the time, he was quite unlike anything else that I had seen before, and anybody can find him on Grey Hughes Investigates, as well as Three Men in a Mystery. He has a lot of things out on YouTube, and numerous interviews. He did a lot of stuff for the Lauren Agee case as well, including interviewing Sheila Wysocki, my, well, first, I'll say another very positive thing about Grey Hughes before I say something very critical. I watched an episode on his channel when he did, like, this three-hour live stream about the murder of Kelly Cook. And he did this tactic where he would read the newspaper articles or the article that had been posted online in its entirety even if he was repeating the same information over and over again, and you hear the same fact like six times, because in a three-hour live stream, he's going through numerous articles, but reading them in its entirety and going over the same stuff over and over again. And I was like, at first, okay, this is getting a bit redundant. He's already said this. But at the end of the three-hour live stream, like, I'm like, holy crap. Now I've remembered it all. So I started doing some of that on Black Box Online Radio, even if I restate some facts when I'm going through some more of the um, things like the Anything Goes segments on Friday or covering different subjects. In an AMA like this, it's more about more talking freely and responding to your questions and comments. My only real strong piece of criticism against Grey Hughes is sometimes he gets really nasty with his audience or he'll get... Um, just very shocked that people are asking certain questions, or maybe he doesn't like the way a question is phrased, so he'll say something nasty back and just condemn absolutely everyone in the audience and saying, you know, you're not supposed to do that, don't ever think like that again, and he, it's not like nastiness that I think most people would catch on to, but there's something about it that bothers me and rubs me the wrong way, it just seems a little bit unnecessary and excessive. Now, on these AMAs, I'm going to be leading with a future, with a feature story in the future. That, that would be a great tongue twister. Feature story in the future. Understand in some other words that sound similar. So I would like to share something with you that is a very smooth pivot from the disappearance of Gabby Petito. Because right now, I'd like to talk to you guys about something that I think would fit in more to those True Crime Talk Radio Tuesday segments that I did in the past, and this relates to a criminal named Robert Chambers, who was known as the Preppy Killer. 
by the way, you know on a smart TV how you have all of those different apps and buttons, like you got your Netflix and your Amazon Prime, and sometimes on certain things, like maybe if you have a Roku or an Amazon Fire Stick, it shows you all the different live channels that you can watch. For the first time last weekend, I watched Court TV. I've seen it there a couple times, but I decided to pull, pull up, pull it up, and they were airing this episode about Robert Chambers, who was known as the Preppy Killer, and he was convicted for the murder of Jennifer Levin, who um, I believe was 18 years old at the time, and there's a very um, odd story about this, and I do promise you this is relevant to the disappearance of Gabby Petito. But this guy, Robert Chambers, was someone who had an expensive cocaine habit. Even though he came from somewhat of a wealthy family, he would resort to burglaries to fund this cocaine habit. He was known to have lots of deviant behavior. And one night, he ended up with a woman named Jennifer Levin. And I'm not going to try and go off into too many directions because I think that I want to approach this in a very general way. And what they shared on Court TV was that she was found dead shortly after their encounter, but the story that Robert Chambers provided after he was caught was, okay, they were involved with some consensual activities, and then she seemed very upset that he did not want a relationship from her, that he was just trying to do something casual. So she began assaulting him, particularly trying to strike him in the groin area, and he just reacted, and he punched her in the throat. And then she fell backward, and he panicked, and then he moved her body to a different location. And I'll just read off a short description here. Jennifer Levin's half-naked corpse was covered in dust and bite marks and was found by a cyclist in Central Park near 5th Avenue and 83rd Street behind the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Clothing from Levin's upper body had been pushed around her neck and the skirt was around her waist. The medical examiner determined that she had been strangled. Police noted that there were numerous cuts and bruises on her neck, both from strangulation and from her own fingernails as she clawed the killer's hands. Later, Chambers hid and watched as police officers surveyed the scene, and his underwear was found 50 yards away. Okay, so that whole thing about punching her in the neck, I mean, I don't know how that would give the marks of strangulation. Maybe that's just simply a crappy story, and it most likely is because this guy, Robert Chambers, the preppy killer, ended up entering a guilty plea, and he was sentenced to 15 years. He actually was let out of prison. And then he was sent back to prison because he was involved in a high-stakes cocaine drug trafficking circuit. So it seems like he was just a bad apple, so to speak. But when I was watching this stuff on Court TV, I noticed that any time they showed a photo of him, there were always these news crews just surrounding him. Like the news coverage was excessive. And I do admit that it was a tragedy that Jennifer Levin was murdered this way, and I can say that, even though he in maintained his innocence. I mean, he pled guilty to it, so he maintained his innocence up until a certain point. He, once he was let out of jail, he was like, yeah, okay, I just um, entered that plea because I didn't want to get more jail time, but I didn't kill her the way they said I did. I mean, it was this accident that happened or some type of self-defense. 
but I began to wonder, why are there all these cameras around him? Is this just the story of, okay, a rich guy did something bad, and um, is, is that scandalous enough? No, there is a reason for this. And that is that a video surfaced of this guy, Robert Chambers, doing things like torturing a Barbie doll, more or less, or the thing they really showed on court TV was twisting the Barbie doll's head off, and as you, as I said, uh, Jennifer was strangled, and he even told that story in his own words, he punched her in the throat, well, I mean, I think you can get the idea, there's a piece of media, though, there's something that the general public can analyze, and no matter what they said on television, and no matter what the actual displays of the case are that have been put forward to the public, I know right now, if I were to ask you the question, if somebody were on video torturing a Barbie doll or strangling a Barbie doll, does that mean that they are mentally unstable? I know no matter who you are listening to this, you would have some type of response or reaction, and you would either say, well, yes, absolutely, because of this reason. No, I don't think so, because of that reason. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle. There are these clues that people can interpret, and I think that is very relevant to the disappearance of Gabby Petito, because the body cam footage from Utah the actions of her ex-fiancé driving from Wyoming to Florida and then disappearing into the nature preserve. And there's something that I did here on the second episode from the Lord and Arts channel about Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie, and that is that his family is not cooperating, and they most likely have been planting numerous red herrings. They wanted him to run away, more or less, and they kind of staged the scene, if you will. So... He would have at least four extra days of a head start from the authorities so that he could disappear on his own free accord, and who knows what. Who knows what he did. I mean, it is uncertain now. But I do insist that when there are these very vivid clues that the general public can interpret, especially forms of media, a video, an audio recording, a recorded phone call, the public has a more intense fascination and I'll address one of the elephants in the room involving the disappearance of Gabby Petito, and that is, are people zoning in on this case because Gabby was a white female? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Absolutely not. I don't think that's the reason at all. I think that it's more about human curiosity. Some of the most famous cases that have taken the true crime world by storm are not involving white people or even females. And I always go back to the disappearance of Elisa Lamb, because this is when I really began to notice that the public had more of a fascination with her case, because there was the elevator video when she's moving her hands around, and um, I really don't mean to go off on a giant Elisa Lamb spiel, but I believe that the whole reason for that is, first leper communist one showed us that she pressed the door hold button in the Cecil Hotel, which stopped the elevator from moving, and then she looks out, and then she looks around, and then she's actually saying, are you haunted by an evil spirit? And then she counts on her fingers saying, I'm going to give you to the count of three, and if this elevator doesn't start working, I'm doing something else. But, um, it's also highly possible that Elisa Lamb was either intoxicated in some way 
or she was having a manic episode, most likely the latter. However, it may just be a combination of both that she had something like a couple beers, and they found a certain amount of alcohol in her system, but most likely Elisa Lamb entered the rooftop via the fire escape at the Cecil Hotel and then climbed on top of the water tank using either the ladder or she even could have climbed down off of the mechanical penthouse, entered the tank voluntarily, and then when she went down there, she didn't realize that the water level was so far down that she couldn't reach the hatch or whatever you could call the opening to the water tank, like the hatch or the covering. So that's how she was just kind of trapped in there, and she began to experience hypothermia, and she began to remove her clothes, and then from that point onward, she just passed away and succumbed because there was no one there to rescue her. She succumbed to the, um, well, the elements of the inside of the water tank. So uh, that's my two cents on the Elisa Lamb case. It was purely an accidental thing, but I do... Oh, I heard conflicting things online. One place said they found alcohol in her heart. One place said they found alcohol in her bile. And I have a couple episodes about this, but just to share one thing that a doctor once told me. I just asked the doctor out of the question. They always say, don't take your medication with alcohol. And I was like, well, why not? Like, what's going to happen? And the doctor's just like, it's just not good. I'm like, well, I mean, are you going to die or is nothing going to happen at all? Give me something on that spectrum. And what the doctor said was, with most medications, they don't work as effectively under the influence of alcohol. So I think that maybe if she had, if it is true that they found alcohol in her bile, meaning that she had consumed it um, a couple days before the elevator incident, that she's not actually drunk during the video, then that would have um, slowly waned her off the medication her symptoms of bipolar disorder would have become more and more intense, and then she would have um, had that incident at the Cecil Hotel when she's actually just having a manic episode, not under the influence of any substance, but she stopped uh, taking her medication, and you know, like one thing led to another that maybe the alcohol was something that pushed her in some way. Just, just a possibility... I mean, Elisa Lamb, rest in peace. Gabby Petito, rest in peace, of course. But about this whole notion of how the um, media circles around certain people, and some guy like Robert Chambers, he would be going in a different direction. He would be someone who is not a woman, not, um, not the victim, though. They're zoning in on the criminal. And there was an interesting comment, though, that was left by Oak Leaves and Onions, who responded to me, and this was on her channel. I've talked to her a couple times about how I started following the channel Oak Leaves and Onions. It's not exactly a life coaching channel. I mean, I, I should say that. It's not a life coaching channel. It's more about, a, like, personal stories and book reviews. And she said something in one video that I thought was so weird, when she's like, Yeah, I met this guy once. And I liked him. He seemed like a homicidal maniac. But I still liked him. And I was like, what? That's so... That's just... I think I just sent a line of question marks in the comments section like, what are you saying? And I found out today that she had actually responded to me about a month ago. Somebody had liked my comment and I got a notification and I looked at what she had said. And she... Her response was that he was very physically attractive, very athletic and well-built. 
liked him the way that you think a large predatory cat is beautiful. And I, I really just was um, quite stunned to read something like that. Because you think this guy is dangerous. And I should also say that the beginning of her comment was she found out that he worked for the drug cartels. So um, he's definitely involved with illegal activities. He seems like a dangerous person. Beautiful the way that a large predatory cat is, what, like a lion or a tiger? Now, I think that this is something where I have to do some type of hairline split, like splitting hairs in one way that may seem absolutely impractical to other people, but also maybe important, because I've just never heard anyone say something like that. I mean, you think a guy's a homicidal maniac, but you still like them? A couple weeks ago on the channel, I was talking about how I thought that the older photos of Leslie Van Houten were very attractive. I said I thought she was the most attractive member of the Manson group. She's a convicted murderer. This this discussion also comes up very frequently with Jody Arias, and uh, people say that they think that she's attractive. I think that she was attractive whenever I last saw her. I haven't seen her recently, but I don't like them. I don't even appreciate them. Yeah, I want to have a greater understanding. I want to learn more about the true crime world, but I don't like these people. There's a difference between tigers and humans. There's a difference between lions and humans. And that is that these large predatory cats, they're dumb animals. They are forgiven. Nature is forgiven. Does a lion wake up in the morning and say, Hey, lion... Buddies and pals, you pride of lions, you. Um, today, we're not going to uh, hunt zebras. Today, we're only going to hunt gazelles because um, of these uh, advantages and disadvantages. No, animals don't think like that. A human, most humans, probably this homicidal maniac that she was friends with, he can think like that. He can express... Conscious awareness. He has the ability to use his conscious mind and his conscious thinking. So that's why I don't like any of these convicted murders. I wouldn't want to be their friend or something. I might want to interview them for the channel. Because, as I said, learn more about humanity. Not to be friendly with them or to even show any appreciation for their persona. So, I don't know, maybe I'm completely way off that there's any type of um likability about anyone who could be a homicidal maniac. And if you're only talking about physical features, I mean, like, then yeah, okay, I can say that I'm a, I, I, I can find attractive qualities in someone who's been convicted of murder. Likeability, like, yeah, I liked her, but she was a homicidal maniac. I don't think I've ever once had that feeling. But what would you say? You can weigh in in the comments section down below. And also to share some things that are more along the lines of true crime talk radio. I have um, something here called Book Page. It's a periodical that's put out by my library. And their cover story was on Mary Roach. And she um, put out a new book called Fuzz. Fuzz, when nature breaks the law, science savant Mary Roach returns with a fascinating, funny, and ferociously reported look at the lawlessness of Mother Nature. 
And these are, um, it's about a series of crimes that have happened, and the perpetrators are all animals. It is, a uh, non-fiction, actually. I talked a lot about Mary Roche back in, um, 2018, when I was doing a segment on Black Box Online Radio called Occult Mondays. And do you guys, um, believe in sort of intuition, like on Overdrive? I'm tempted to find a synonym for psychic powers and such. I don't believe in psychic powers. I'm definitely not a psychic, but when I was walking, like, in the library, like, I walked in, walked up the stairs, and I was thinking, randomly, about this one conversation that I had back in 2009, about when somebody was telling me, hey, you need to read the book Bonk. It's about sex, and I guess that person thought I didn't know anything about sex. Yeah, if you. But, um, no, they were saying in that somewhat of a condescending way, like, you need to read the book, Bonk. And I was like, even as I was thinking about it, you know, just, you know how you get lost in your own mind while you're walking sometimes? I was like, why on earth am I thinking about that? But then, after I was reading, um, this uh, book page magazine that I'm holding now, it um, I picked it up about five minutes after I was thinking about that stuff, and I opened the to the Mary Roach page, and it turned out that she was the author of Bonk, that book that somebody had told me to read, and I don't know what connected. I had no idea Mary Roach was going to be the cover story in this one, or that she even wrote that one. It says, the unspoken assumption was that people study sex because they are perverts, or at the very least because they harbor an interest in the matter, which makes people wary of sex researchers and other people extremely interested. Bonk, The Curious Coupling of Sex and Science, in, published in 2008 by Mary Roach. I don't know, that's just one thing where I was thinking about something, and then I found it uh, several minutes later, like, what's that called? Like, not intuition, premonition, is that the right word? Or, um, prediction? No, that's too gentle. Maybe it is a premonition, something to that effect. But yeah, I talked a lot about her book, Spook, in, uh, 2018, when I was doing the Occult Monday segment. I still have that one over on my bookshelf over there. Now, there was one more book they were promoting in this thing, and this is not super true crime related, but it's called The Secret History of Food by Matt Siegel. And it's a little bit true crime, but we can talk about anything on the Wednesday show, really. And I didn't do a true crime talk radio last week, so all of this gets blended in together. But there are 12 weird moments in the history of food. It's kind of weird stuff that I wanted to share with you guys. In 1893, the Supreme Court had to rule whether tomatoes were a fruit or a vegetable. Even in 1893, your tax dollars were hard at work. Number two, people used to think potatoes caused syphilis and leprosy. That's pretty good. Number three, vanilla isn't very vanilla. Uh, vanilla actually comes from a word the conquistadors used for vagina because <laughs> they thought vanilla was sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Number four. The first um, breakfast cereals were intentionally bland. Lame. Oh, but it says, though, because ready-to-eat breakfast cereals were created in the 1800s by religious health reformers who believed sugar and spices were sinful and that consuming them incited bodily temptation leading to sexual urges and chronic masturbation. 
Wow. Wow. Frosted Flakes, they're great. <laughs> Number five. Our affinity for certain comfort foods begins in the womb, based on what your mother is uh, eating. People used to believe personality traits and intellect were passed on through breast milk. Sorry, I don't even want to think about that. Number seven, an entire ear of ancient corn was about the size of a cigarette. Oh, this one's actually kind of interesting, because it says corn was uh, selectively bred from over thousands of years. Like, it slowly uh, changed over uh, several thousands of years to become much larger. But we still have baby corn, of course. Number eight, there's a decent chance the honey in your cupboard comes from lawn weeds or poison ivy. I'm not bothered by that at all. And it doesn't bother me at all. Number nine. Fidel Castro was obsessed with American dairy. This is something that I think is very relevant to the true crime world, especially the stuff when I talk about the CIA, because back in 2017, I watched the documentary Dark Secrets of the CIA, which may still be on YouTube, but it wasn't very good because they had three different former CIA operatives, and each of them told one story, although it did introduce me to Ralph McGeehee, who wrote the book Deadly Deceit. That one gets mentioned very frequently. But about this, there was a plan that the CIA had. So said this documentary, Dark Secrets of the CIA, to poison a milk truck in Cuba. But the milk truck wasn't going to Fidel Castro. It was going to a cafeteria full of school children. Absolutely horrible. But um, for some reason, even though it's been about four years, I think that the plan was unsuccessful. Anyway, that doesn't surprise me at all that Fidel Castro was obsessed with American dairy. That's almost like an adding insult to injury. The CIA does some horrible things. Number 10. No one wanted to eat Patagonian toothfish until they were rebranded as Chilean sea bass in 1994. Now they sell for $29.99 a pound at Whole Foods. Number 11. Spice traders used to make up stories about the exotic origin of spices so they could sell them for more money. Well, these both are sales tactics. I mean, firstly, dolphin fish, like, dolphin fish is just mahi-mahi, right? I know that's a different one. They were talking about Chilean sea bass. But, um, somebody told me that once, that they changed the name in supermarkets from dolphin fish to mahi-mahi because they thought people wouldn't buy something that has the word dolphin in the name. So, um, as for the spice traders making up stories about the exotic origins of spices so they could sell them for more money... Yeah, um, I told a similar story about how back in the early part of the 20th century, and this goes well before that, I'm sure they're talking about spice trading, all throughout the second millennia. But in the early part of the 20th century, there's this guy named Wallace Fard, who possibly, possibly was a British Polynesian, he was the son of a British sailor and a Polynesian woman born in New Zealand and then went from New Zealand to America. But that's the whole point. Things were poorly documented. They didn't have electronic databases in 1915 or 1920 or 1925. So if somebody were to arrive on the west coast of America and then make his way to Detroit the way that Wallace Fard possibly did, people wouldn't have any way to verify his story. But Wallace Fard was a guy who had an unusual appearance. Because he possibly was half Polynesian, half British, and I had always assumed that he was half black, like his father was British, but 
you can be from the United Kingdom, I suppose, from the British Empire and be black. But it, it it's possible he might have even had a Caucasian father and a Polynesian mother. So he was just very dark in complexion. And people didn't really recognize his appearance, but he would try to blend in with the African-American communities. The term that perhaps we could use would be black passing. And this is very important because Wallace Fard would go on to become an important member in the founding of the Nation of Islam. And he was a garment salesman who was working in America, and he would come up with this plan to attract more customers. Be like, do you want to buy some fabric? And people are going to be like, no. So then what he would do is say, these are the garments of your ancestors. I come from a land called Mecca. And someone would be like, dude, our ancestors are black. And he's like, what? Yeah, Mecca's in Saudi Arabia. That's Western Asia, Middle East. That's not in Africa. Oh, well, these um, are from the nation of Islam. Let me tell you about it. And he would um, just, you know, weave it together a story. But the whole thing is he says they're from Mecca and it's the land of the black people. But they're not actually, well, I think you get the idea. Yes, people do this in many different trades. These things about spice traders making up stories to sell more money. Lots of people did that because we didn't have Wikipedia, we didn't have the internet, we didn't have smartphones for all those years. And number 12, the adage, you'll catch more flies with honey than vinegar, is really, isn't really true. You actually will catch more flies with vinegar than honey. Wow, you had that wonderful list, and that's the one you choose to end on? Anyway, <laughs> The Secret History of Food by Matt Siegel, available where books are sold. That's some good stuff, actually. Normally I'm not into books like that, but I'm just that list there was pretty impressive. Well, thank you everybody for listening to this episode. Much appreciated. Please look out for the episode on the disappearance of Donna Lass and the conclusion of the New Orleans Axeman saga, and of course debunking things on the weekend. And my interview with Mike Rodelli is now out on the Zodiac Killer channel. Anyone can go over there, like, subscribe to the Zodiac Killer channel, watch the episode on... Mike Rodelli, as well as the three-part documentary series on Obsession into Darkness, all about the Zodiac Killer, available on that channel. Thank you so much for listening. Anyone can follow the show on Facebook, in the description box, BlackBoxNet88 on Instagram. Anybody can write the show at BlackBoxOnlineRadio at AOL.com. All of that is in the description box there. Feel free to visit the Teespring page, as well as getting a copy of the book Killer on a White Horse by me. Ned Dahan. It's a novel, murder mystery, but feel free to have a look at that, as well as The Secret History of Food by Matt Siegel, Fuzz by Mary Roach, and loads of true crime things that I've been talking about, Court TV, as well as all major media sources and so on. Lots of things to go through. I'll see you on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time.